Welcome to Southern New Hampshire University's Social Sciences podcast, Agents of Change. Here we invite students and professionals to chat with us on topics of inclusion and diversity, student success, and their learning experiences. In this podcast, we will hear insights and personal accounts of people who have persisted against the odds and impacted positive social change. Join us as we learn how we can all be positive agents of change. Welcome to the Agents of Change podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Dr. Liz Johnson, an Associate Dean in the Social Sciences at Southern New Hampshire University. During this episode, we will be speaking with Adam Smith to discuss diversity, equity, and inclusion and how we can take steps to put DEI into action. Adam is a first-generation college graduate who has dedicated his almost three-decade career to ensuring college access and success for all Americans. He currently works at the University of Kentucky as Executive Director for University Advising and has a vibrant public speaking and educational consulting firm, Adam A. Smith & Associates. Adam has led coalitions and innovations that have had a dramatic impact on student success at Metropolitan State University, the University of Alabama, the University of Akron City of Rockford, and Rock Valley College. Welcome, Adam. It's great to have you here on the podcast. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, Liz. It's great to be here. All right, so we'll just get going with some of these questions. So obviously with, with the, the bio, the blurb I just read, you have had quite a bit of experience. Can you talk uh, just a little bit with your perspective on the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion, access, and the growth and or change you've seen in our culture? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question. I think from my perspective, there was a time in our industry, you know, higher ed is kind of, as folks believe, these bastions of liberalism. And there was a point where diversity was in everybody's strategic plan. It was on what I would call right faces and right places diversity, right? It's on these banners when you drive around campus. It's something we value, but then not anything we really live or do the work. Um, kind of what's happened now, right? We have this performative DEI space where um, just as long as I'm not like fill in the blank, those people, right? Um, then I'm doing my work and I'm all about DEI, just like they are, others are supposedly against CRT, which isn't exactly what they're against. But um, at the end of the day, I think, um, the DE&I work and the justice work for me is really what drew me to higher education and ended up being a ministry for me, is feeling a calling to do justice, love mercy, you know, tip tables, wash feet, and do the work that it takes. Because in the end, the only two ways to build wealth in our nation is to own property and to have education. And so what better justice uh, work can we do, but investing in higher education and also finding ways to make those institutional systems work in a way for people who they weren't intended to work for, if that makes sense. Sure, it does. So do you think we're heading in the right direction or are there in the big pictures, there's something that we're missing? And I guess by we, I would say like universities, people in higher ed, 
and maybe society at large, like, are we going in the right way or, or what are we missing? Oh, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I think we're trying. I think there are people who are trying, but when you're comparing yourself against 79 million other people who believe in something else, who are afraid of change, who have this nationalistic, um, almost myth mythological point of view, it's really, really difficult to do your own work. It's like saying, hey, I'm just an alcoholic. I'm not that heroin addict on the street. At the end of the day, right, I think that's the challenge is not comparing yourself to others who are not doing any work or rejecting the idea of working in any place. In the end, to me, it all just comes back to fear, right? How afraid are we to change? How afraid are we of being uncomfortable? How afraid are we of doing kind of the work and our own work? Because that's really where it starts. And how afraid are we of being different? Um, but to me, it's fighting for something bigger, right? It's fighting for a nation, for others, for people who have been othered, and how we can do that work every single day in our lives. Yeah, it's that's you're right. It's the uncomfortable. It's getting into it and while we may look at DEI and access and looking at it as work for others, it's much, very much internal work as well. Cause it's the being uncomfortable. It's the change we have to see. It's the mindset. It's the underlying biases. It's everything. And that, that gets hard. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I think people, I was talking to a colleague of mine one day and we were in a meeting on a campus and we're meeting with some colleagues and afterward she said, I am so sorry it went that way. And I said, I was just Karen being Karen. And she said, what? I said, oh, did you think Karens are those people that are storming the Capitol and sitting outside schools saying, don't teach people to use terms they and she and he and don't teach non-binary and oh, don't teach that George Washington's teeth are made out of wood. Those aren't Karens. Karens are the people that we invite to the barbecue. Karens are the folks who work in higher ed, who are liberals, who have historically weaponized not only their womanhood, but their whiteness to do harm to black and brown bodies. Those other people don't know black and brown people well enough to do us harm, unless it's actual physical harm, right? Um, but to do us harm in the workplace, to do the work harm, you have to know a little bit. And so the reality is holding ourselves accountable to as we begin to develop some level of cultural mindfulness, to use that mindfulness to the good. Like it's, it's almost like Peter Parker, right? For much is given, much is expected. With great power comes great responsibility. There is great power in working in the academy, great privilege of working in the academy, and great power and privilege to do DEI work, especially for folks who are not BIPOC folks, that you need to use that power and privilege in a really positive way and never weaponize it to do people harm. Right, right. And that's hit me more and more lately 
looking around the, the virtual room that I'm in and looking at the bodies in there and how are we using the space and the time and who is it benefiting at the end of the day. Um, and I, I'm a big fan of, we, we, we don't know what we don't know and how are we going to know it? So, you know, what should we know in this arena and what do we need to know? Cause we're afraid to ask very often or we don't know we have to ask or should. Yeah. You know, I think it's really important. You and I were talking offline about, you know, this cultural relativism versus, you know, these other ideas. And to me, it starts with mindfulness, understanding your lens, right. And the way you see things and the way that you see things, especially in this country, a lot of it isn't true. Right. And that's not an indictment over people, places, things, families, your rabbi, your priest, your mom, anybody. It just is. Right. Mm -hmm. And so realizing that, I think, is the first step to growth. Right. A friend of mine was telling me the other day, I just don't know what's going to happen to this world, this world. I said, the world, Uh, the United States is not the world. (laughs) I mean, we are a 12-year-old boy compared to the world. And where this 250-year-old baby of a country is in 100, 200, 250 more years is really up to us, right? But we're not the world. We're not the center of the universe. And realizing that the reality is we all have work to do, but it has to start now. Um, Bank of America did did a study and they released it a couple of years or, or yeah, a couple of months ago that said um, that a lack of diversity is costing America twenty three trillion dollars. Mm. Trillion with a T. Trillion. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. And think about in the higher ed space, if we just hired the most qualified. Right. I mean, forget about the for-profit businesses out here in the private sector. All of us, we're a 60, 50, 40, even the people we aspire to be, 75% graduation rate in six years is good numbers. We all get paid. We all have the best uh, benefits in our region, right? All of these things, yet our numbers are about a C on average, Yeah. right? And we're supposed to be these bastions of inclusion and equity and justice, yet you look around and you don't really see those faces. And it doesn't just have to do with race or gender or religious affiliation or who you love. It has to do with your experiences, right? And if we just gave opportunities to the most qualified, how much better would we be? Like, do you want the brain surgeon who is a good fit for you or the person you liked? Or do you want the person who's the most qualified to do surgery on your brain? At the end of the day, our fit and our level of comfort um, is a huge disadvantage to our industry, to our students, to our colleagues, to our nation, right? And we tend to not hold up mirrors in front of ourselves in higher ed spaces because we hide behind things like fit I really didn't like their presentation. Well, unless the job is presenting, it doesn't really matter what you're presenting. And you're not 
picking someone to go have coffee with, you're picking someone who is the best for your students in your institution. So I think that really starts to me in a cultural mindfulness space, which is deeply personal. What are the biases I'm coming to this table with? What are the things that I'm doing that are making me see this as being uncomfortable when in the end, this is comfortable? Yes. And I, you hit on one of my main, oh, I love it, biases, where implicit, explicit, where do they come from? Um, so in that vein, th this DEI journey, it, it is a journey. It's not a place. It, it's something we do every day. And it, it's not a step one, step two, step three. It's, it's not linear. You know, it's cyclical. And maybe you get to a third step and then you say, oh, well, I don't know much about this. Maybe I should go back to the beginning. Um, and so we, we have this highly personalized journey that, and even in reflecting in this, some people, a lot of it begins with knowledge acquisition. Some people do it in books and webinars. And that's a very pri privileged place to come from. Other people live it every day. And they didn't, it's a place where they experience it and they experience so much from such a young age, they don't even know it's happening. And then eventually they say, oh, well, that's, oh, <laughs> equity. What, what is that? Wow. Okay, sure. So then the frame through which, the lens through which we learn about these things is also very different, which gives us different perspectives. And mm -hmm. I, I like how you talked about earlier cultural relativism and something else you brought to my attention a few weeks ago was this thing of cultural humility, this idea. And so to, to form a question, I suppose. Um, how, how can people navigate this? Because even the way we talk about DEI and in my thinking again, like, well, how do we go from knowledge acquisition to, to doing? Well, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a very biased place to come from because other people didn't start in the acquisition phase. They lived it and they did it. So how do we, how can people who are allies or accomplices, how can we talk about it? And how do we interact with people that are, again, are at differing stages of this DEI journey? How, I don't know, is there a way to talk about how that can be done consciously or safely? Or how do you do it without offending others that which you're trying yeah. to include? In I think in the, so I do better with stories. So I think, <laughs> interestingly, um, Luckily, you have great stories. Yeah, I don't know. So <laughs> right after 45 got elected, I was sitting with a colleague of mine who was a faculty member, super, super ally, accomplice, uh, white woman, just just a, a warrior, right? And we're at coffee, and she is just completely losing it. Like, I didn't know. I am so dis like. And she says, Adam, I'm surprised you aren't more upset. I was like, I knew y'all was going to elect him. And she said, well, I didn't. Yes, stop it. Stop it. Okay, stop. The one thing growing up in my family that is Czechoslovakian Germans that I know, you don't talk about race, family, or religion at any, any gathering. The one thing at a Black gathering you talk about is race, family, or race, family, religion, right? Race, politics, and religion. So there's these things in white spaces you just don't talk about because you don't want to be uncomfortable. So we don't talk about race. 
We don't talk about politics. We don't talk about religion. You go hang out with a bunch of black people. That's all you're talking about. Race, politics, religion, and maybe sports, right? So it's these very, very differing experiences. And finally, I said to her, but sis, you need to get your people. And she said, what do you mean? You were people. Those aren't my people. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Those are people that are in your family. Those are people that are in your circle, people you look the other way despite the vile things they do and they say. You, you allow this. This isn't 79 million black and brown people. Stop it. Stop. Well, you know, black and brown people did vote for 45. Yeah, they did. A nickel's a lot of a dollar, too. But it, it really isn't. So, no, we didn't. The question is, who do you want to be? And who are you going to allow in your life? Period. It's just that simple. When my mom said to my stepdad, if you aren't clean, you can't come home. You're either in treatment or you're not allowed to be here because your disease, your alcoholism affects me and it affects everyone else. This is the time for this nation, right? And it all starts with each person. I think it, in the end, you know, thinking about our family, you know, because we are family, you and I, there's this great author, um, and I'll mess up his name, but um, he's the grandson of Elijah Muhammad, who has a podcast called The Black Friend Podcast. And it's him as one of his white homies that all they talk about is these relationships. So the other piece I would add when you want to be an ally or accomplice is you can't be an ally or an accomplice and only have people like you in your life, right? Sure. You just can't. And it can't be, yes, having black kids and being married to a black person doesn't make you an ally or an accomplice or a fighter for justice for the people. <laughs> you know, you remember back two, three, four, five years ago, it feels like a million, when Cheerios had a commercial with a biracial girl and her black dad and her white mom, and the United States exploded. People were like, what is going on, right? And all of the white liberals just loved it. And the thing about it now is watch TV and news, watch commercials, if we ever watch commercials, and see how many commercials have multiracial kids and their white parents. It is all over the place. Those companies understand what we think. They under, they're trying to sell us something. And what if that immediately ingratiates in people's heart? Because you don't have a reaction that's visceral, that's George Wallace-esque, that race mixing. You don't have that reaction. So then you feel like you're a good person. So you go out and buy products that help with prostate care, right? That's exactly what they're selling to us because mm -hmm. none of that is real. 87% of black women in this country are, or 87% of black men are married to black women. 91% of black women are married to black men. So that is not America. But why are the commercials and TV and news and movies showing these interracial relationships? Why? Because it makes white liberals feel good and makes them go buy stuff. It's just that simple. So the last piece, and you and I talked about this, this story, and it was an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show where Oprah is sitting with Maya Angelou, right? And Maya Angelou was a mentor to Oprah. 
So it's crazy. And they're sitting on the stage and they're talking and it's like everyone watching isn't there. It's like Yoda and Luke Skywalker vibing, right? <laughs> sure. And you're like, I just wanted to be Luke. I ain't trying to be Yoda. That's impossible. And so they're having this conversation and Oprah's talking about, remember that dinner party at your house? And Maya says, yeah, I remember the dinner party. And then Oprah looks at the screen like Oprah does and said, can y'all imagine who was at a dinner party at Maya's house? And the first thing I thought was, yeah, Oprah, you, right? But so if it's people of Oprah's level and across, like world-changing people, Oprah in Maya Angelou's home, and Oprah's telling the story about how they are sitting and they're in these different groups in cocktail hour and some person comes up to a group and they tell a joke that's kind of off so not super bad, but just kind of uncomfortable. And nobody in one group says anything. And so then the person meanders around and they go to another group and they tell the same joke and everybody kind of, you know, it's not cool or whatever, but nobody says anything. Then she says, and then she looks at Maya and says, and then across the room, we hear your voice. And you said, sir, get your coat. And if my and now this person was invited to Maya Angelou's home. So it wasn't like this was not a heavy hitter in whatever they're in in the world. But when Maya Angelou tells you to get their coat, you get your coat. Yeah, and serious. So, right. I mean, that's Maya Angelou. So when she says, get your coat, so the person gets it. And Oprah's sitting there and she says, why did you say that? And she said, that's my space. I don't allow that negativity in my space. I don't allow it in the air. I don't allow it in the walls. I don't allow it in the paint. I don't, it gets in your pores like smoke at a nightclub that you have to wash out, right? And Oprah said, but all of us, I mean, she said there were Hollywood heavy hitters, political people, all of these people, giants in the industry, giants in education, and nobody said anything. And Maya said, you gotta get your Maya muscles, baby. She said, it takes time. It takes one choice, one decision, one no at a time, one justice that you stand up for. So I would say, and I'm not a big fan of Jedi, but I would say we got to go beyond DEI and to justice, right? And justice is an action that we all have to do by using our Maya muscles. And no, like you said, black and brown folks, there is a resilience and a strength and a walk in dealing with all of the isms in this world, just like our LGBT brothers and sisters, just like women, just like all of the things that folks just don't have yet. But for others, it's one choice, one relationship, one question, one standing in righteousness at a time. And not standing in righteousness for you, standing in righteousness for others. Be a space maker, right? Don't just take space, make space. Because those are the, uh, don't wait for the black person on the search to have to say, well, I really like so-and-so. <clears throat> you say it. You be the person who says it. You be the person who advocates for your students who are Muslim when you have class on or during Ramadan. You be the person who does that because that builds muscles so that when you really, when the time comes that you really have to make choices, then you have enough Maya muscles that you can stand on the right side of history. But it's one choice, one decision, one action at a time, one last really little thing, since 
my SNU family is all virtual. When you see black and brown folks that are your colleagues or your students and their cameras aren't on, know that there's a reason. People don't talk about that in advance. That's a solidarity thing. People don't feel seen. So then how do you see them? And it isn't even conscious. You ain't seeing me, you ain't gonna see me. That's what people do. And you can say, when people shoot up a, a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, you can send your colleague a text and say, hey, I was thinking about you and your family. Just know that I'm here for you. Know that I see you. Know that I love you and I care about you. That is building your mind muscles. See, people's trauma is more important than our discomfort. I don't know what to say. How about say I'm sorry? You don't just say you're sorry when you've wronged somebody. You say you're sorry when someone's hurting. And when I saw George Floyd screaming from his mother on the ground, screaming for his mother on the ground in my hometown, that was my brother. That's different. Y'all cried? That's my brother. And so that's a different feeling. And so it's okay to say, Adam, I'm so sorry. If there's anything I can do, I can tell you there was a colleague of mine from Iowa who called me after George was murdered the next day and said, Adam, I just want you to know that I'm thinking about you and Linda. If you need anything, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I got you. That was the most memorable. Can you imagine? Like, that should be all the time. But it isn't, right? And so those are the kind of things that I think we all can do to move past kind of this performative DNI being a noun, like you talked about, and making it a verb, which is really justice, right? Action. Because that, that's, that's where the power is and learning about it and experiencing it and building those muscles. But when you get to use them mm. and it's hopefully it's not all the time and hopefully it's less and less. Mm. If, if that's the case, we're trending in the right direction. And mm. that's my hope is that we can learn to use them and know how to do it, but maybe in the future, not have to, or not have to as much because it won't exist as much. Well, and if we commit to each other and to ourselves to doing the work, because you're right, the work, is it a webinar? Is it re reading Ibram X. Kendi's latest book? Eh, yeah. But in the <laughs> end, what are you doing at the grocery store though? What are you doing when you're interacting with your students? Are you seeing them? Are you seeing them as different? Are you surrounding yourself with people who are gonna say, hey, Liz, you're my cousin, I'm gonna hold you accountable. You're either doing your work. If you're not, I love you, but come see me when you're ready, right? That's the reality of the lives we have to start leading because like you said, it is a privilege to choose to deal with DNA or not. If our white brothers and sisters are not willing to just do some work, we will never be what this nation can be. We'll be what it's going to be, right? Blessed be the fruit. That's what we're going to be. Because when they come for one, they come for all. So this isn't just about women's right to choose their own lives. This isn't just about those things. It's about all of these different layers of things. And it just compounds on itself. And so I think those are the challenges we all face every day. And it's 
having, especially as educators in the higher ed space, this is a Hippocratic oath almost, right? To do no harm to our students. But that has to start with our continued development on ourselves. And if we aren't willing to do it, then who? Then when? Like, we, there is no time in this country where the contrast isn't more visible, right? I mean, yeah, in the 60s, there was a contrast, but you had to turn it on your TV. Now we see the visible contrast. You turn on CNN tonight and watch a trial for people who tried to take this country into complete oblivion. And we're talking about it like it's a debate, right? I mean, that's what we have allowed to permeate in this nation. And that's not some obscure group of people with crazy names. That is 79 million people who are saying yes and amen to that. And the question is, why are we in communion with them? And why we don't isolate those kind of thoughts and behaviors and say, no, that's not acceptable. Even if I don't totally get why. Um, interesting, another quick little story. So there's an athlete who is swimming for the University of Pennsylvania who um, uh, won whatever race she run. And there was all this debate around, does the athlete belong swimming in the women's division? Because oh, blah, yes. blah, the athlete was trans. My daughter was a college track athlete, right? So people always asking me, what do you think? What do you think? So I was sitting down with the very same daughter who now works with student athletes every day. And I said to her, so what do you think? I said, if you would have lost the 200 to somebody who has a little more testosterone than you, I said, I, as your dad, I would have been kind of peeved. And she said, you know, see, that's made me proud of my kids. She said, you know what? <laughs> um, me losing is less important than, than her having space. Right. And I said, you know, for me, and I said, oh, honey, I'm so proud of you for saying that. I said, so for her to have space was more important. And she said, yeah. And I said, for me, I know the people who have a problem with it and the other things they have a problem with. So I ain't going to side with them on anything. So maybe it's going to take me longer to figure out like what God is saying in this one. I don't have it all figured out, but to realize that making space and picking a side is really, really important. Because um, there's a lot of things that we thought the world was that it isn't. I mean, I, I was talking about George Washington's teeth. It's crazy, but it wasn't made out of wood. I mean, and that doesn't threaten everything. It's just people will say, you know, because Juneteenth was the other day, what can I do? Learn Black history. How about learn American history? How about just learn history, like first account, literal history of this country, and then we build, and then we go, and we repair, and we figure it out, um, and rejecting mythology, but learning not Black history, but learning your history, and what really happened, because then we can move forward, rather than fearing, and you're right, when people say, this is hurtful, and this is offensive, my my mom said to me one day, well, where does it end? Hopefully never. Hopefully we continue to evolve and we continue to develop as people and as a species and things become, things change and things are hurt, hurtful and harmful. And as they pop, we um, break them down and, and change and say, you know what, if this hurts you, I'm with you. Yeah, and hopefully that change does 
occur, even if it is slowly, um, maybe in, oh, 2030, hurts to say that. Maybe in 2030, we can look back and say, oh my gosh, can you believe where we were in 2020? I hope mm. we can, because mm. we look back and people today will still say, oh, well, 1960s, oh, that was rough. But it's many, a, What it's steps have we made? None. Can we truly, truly none. make that change? I, I mean, I hate to say that, but it's the same playbook. The same playbook, my office at the University of Alabama looked at the schoolhouse door that George Wallace stood in, okay? Like literally, I looked at that mm -hmm. door every day of Foster Auditorium. And yeah, there's there's been performative changes, but when 79 pe million people vote for an admitted racist, white supremacist, misogynist, xenophobe, um, is there really? I mean, the same playbook that was used about changing culture and values through desegregation, they're using and and using letters of CRT that have absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about, right? That is that is not what CRT is. So, but it's just finding something that people can spin to regain power, to mm. sustain power, to get us to turn against each other rather than us to look at the real problems, right? And that's the big issue. And I think, I don't know. Every day I wonder if, you know, you go up that roller coaster and that first hill, it's going click, 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 and you get to the top. I just don't know if we're at the top yet. I, I hope we are, but as a world, um, there are some great lessons of what healing and what true reconciliation looks like. Germany is a great example. There's a whole bunch of places who have reconciled their history and become different and embraced it. Um, we are just a baby. And so the question is, are stars and bars something that in a hundred years ingratiate pride or what they really were is an attack on everything this nation was founded to be about? Right. Well, Adam, I really appreciate you being here. This Obviously, there's a lot, gosh, a lot we've unpacked and a lot you've said with amazing stories. Um, wonderful. Um, so I want to thank you for sharing that wisdom and those tidbits with us because, yeah, just amazing. Um, and I hope people listening can take what they've learned and hopefully they can become, make space for people and become those agents of change. Thank you for listening to Southern New Hampshire University's Agents of Change, a social sciences podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us, and be on the lookout for more exciting episodes. Goodbye for now.